Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I am Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. First, the news. I'm still trying to get folks to sign the petition for Matthew Charles' clemency, commutation, I guess, actually, and also to get folks to write the Illinois Department of Corrections to ask them to reinstate the Stateville debate team. I will include both links in the show notes again. You can find those at decarcerationnation.com or through the aggregator you use. I also wrote an article this week explaining how Securus, if you remember my episode about JPay, Securus is the parent company of JPay. So I wrote this article about how Securus leverages free tablets in a way that creates a partnership with departments of corrections that create an incentive for the end of in-person visitation. Uh, I think this is one of the more terrible things the departments of corrections and jails throughout the United States are engaging in. They're starting to use uh, tablet visitation and then replacing in-person visitation. So I'll include a link to that article as well. Not much else in the way of news today, so let's get right to this week's interview with Bruce Western. Very excited to interview Bruce Western today, a man whose work I have followed for many years. Mr. Western is a professor of sociology at Harvard University, a visiting professor at Columbia, and the author of many important and influential books and stories about criminal justice. Today, we will be discussing his most recent book, Homeward, Life in the Year After Prison, about the Boston reentry study. Mr. Western was the principal investigator of that study. Hello, Professor Western. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the book. So uh, I guess my first question is, can you set the stage about your book for us a bit by providing a quick review of the Boston reentry study, maybe with a focus on what motivated you to start the project and a short form of what you discovered? Sure. Um, well, I'd, I'd been doing work in this area for a long time, trying to understand the, the causes, the scope, uh, all the different effects of the emergence of mass incarceration in America. And these were big sort of statistical studies uh, using large national social survey data sets. Uh, I felt I learned a lot from doing that sort of research. I uh, learned a lot about uh, particularly how people were doing in the labor market, uh, how people were going with their families uh, after incarceration. Uh, but in many ways, I thought the kind of research I was doing lacked realism. It, it wasn't representing very well uh, the kinds of lives I, I knew people were leading during and after incarceration, lives that I was learning about through other sorts of uh, contacts I was having, like teaching in prison and and getting to know people uh, who had been in the system. Uh, and I felt, in, in, in Brian Stevenson's term, I felt I needed more proximity to the problem. And uh, I thought uh, I really needed uh, to be out into the field and talking to people in a systematic way and trying to collect data in a systematic way. Uh, and so... Uh, with Anthony Braga, who's now uh, heads up the Criminal Justice School at Northeastern, and Rihanna Cole, 
who heads the research unit at Department of Correction in Massachusetts. Uh, we designed a study where we would uh, interview 122 people uh, we wound up interviewing who uh, had been incarcerated in state prison in Massachusetts and were uh, returning to neighbourhoods uh, around Boston. Uh, I was mostly trying to understand people's conditions of living, uh, their income, their employment, uh, their relationships uh, with family, their health and housing. Uh, that was our, our main intention. I think the main finding there was that uh, there's a lot of material hardship immediately after incarceration. The average annual income, the median annual income after people uh, are released from prison in our data was about $6,500 a year in that first year after prison. Uh, and that's a, uh, an income level the poverty researchers call deep poverty, about uh, half the federal poverty line for a person uh, who is living alone. So a lot of material hardship, uh, deep income poverty immediately after prison release. Uh, we also learned that people uh, in many cases were in quite poor health. Uh, they struggled with chronic conditions, infectious disease, chronic pain, uh, mental health problems. And we learned that people had uh, great exposure uh, to trauma that often dated from early childhood. And uh, to me, those last two findings about uh, childhood trauma uh, and uh, the really serious health problems that people were struggling with, uh, they were the perhaps uh, two of the most important things I felt I learned from the study. So I think, you know, if uh, you know, if I were, to, it's hard for me to take this position, but to take the position of a tough on crime advocate, they might say that this is an acceptable outcome because that of you know, for instance, if that is if we had a if we had mass incarceration and they'll say we had a decline in crime rates over a long time a period of time, that maybe that's an acceptable outcome of the reduction in crime. What would you maybe say to that? I I I think that is not an accurate reading of the research evidence you know so there are uh, there are lots of studies uh, that have tried to estimate uh, the effects of incarceration uh, on crime uh, most of these studies show uh, that there is a small negative effect of incarceration on crime so if you increase the incarceration rate, uh, crime goes down uh, a little bit, and uh, um, and uh, so uh, and typically the, the research estimates show if you increase incarceration ten percent, crime goes down by one percent. Um, uh, but I think we have to understand exactly what those studies are telling us, and. Uh, uh, what they're saying is if we increase incarceration this year uh, by 10%, uh, uh, we reduce crime uh, next year by 1%. They don't tell us uh, very much about the long-term effects of incarceration. Uh, they don't tell us uh, how people uh, will struggle uh, to find work uh, for many years uh, uh, after they've been uh, released from prison. They don't tell us about 
uh, all the effects on health, uh, physical health and mental health uh, after people leave prison. And they say absolutely nothing at all of the social costs that are borne by families uh, who uh, are supporting people uh, uh, who are being released from incarceration. So I think uh the research, when you take account of all the different social consequences and long-term consequences of incarceration, uh, the research shows uh, that uh, it can't be justified uh, by a, a reduction in crime rate. The, there are social costs uh, that greatly exceed the short-term reduction in crime. The other thing I'd add is that none of those studies uh, take account of uh, uh, the violence and other crime that goes on inside prison. And uh, it seems to me that you really have to wa- to weigh that if you're trying to figure out uh, the effect of incarceration on crime. Yeah, I thought that was one of the really interesting parts of your book is your inclusion of the notion of crime and, and violence inside of prison within the statistics, which I hadn't seen people do before, but makes a lot of sense to me. When I read the book, uh, I, I noticed that you spent a decent amount of time talking about the care you took in constructing the study team. I noticed that you included people who had worked extensively with formerly incarcerated people, but I didn't notice necessarily that there were any formerly incarcerated folks on your team. Did you also include some of the voices of people who'd uh, had firsthand experience? Um, we we did and we didn't. And uh, so the, uh, the first thing I would say is, you know, this was the first field study of this kind uh, that I had done. I'd, I'd worked on a couple of other projects uh, that had a, a big field component in them and, and uh, uh, the New York hiring discrimination study with uh, Diva Pager that I, I worked on. We had uh, formerly incarcerated people uh, working with us on that uh, on that research project. And we didn't do this uh, in Boston, in part because uh, I had, when the study got off the ground, I had only uh, recently moved to Boston. I was still getting my feet wet with uh, uh, that uh, that environment. And uh, but I, I will say this: we uh, we had a pretest sample uh, in our study of. Uh, of 10 respondents and they went through the whole interview protocol uh, about six months before uh, the main sample and we would talk to them a lot about not uh, we wouldn't just try out our interview questions we'd talk to them a lot about uh, what they thought about the questions we were asking what questions we should be asking and they became uh de facto advisors uh, on the research. And I've, I've since kept in contact with uh, a number of people on that uh, pretest sample. And, and I think the instinct behind your question is exactly right. Our, our, our research definitely would have benefited uh, from a more direct and more substantial involvement of people who are involved uh in the system, and uh, um, I think if I were to do it uh, all over again, 
this would be very much a, a priority in the design of the study. So a topic that we've returned to pretty often on the podcast is what I consider to be a mostly political distinction between what are called violent and nonviolent offenders, quote unquote. Your book kind of delves into this a lot. Can you expand a bit about your thoughts on the distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as you suggest, this is uh, an enormously important distinction for uh, the political debate. And we we sometimes seem to be in a place in the criminal justice reform conversation where we quite readily uh, uh, focus our uh, reform efforts uh, on people who have been uh, convicted of uh, of drug crimes and uh, other uh, nonviolent crimes. Um, for me. Uh, uh, as well, I think this is very much uh, uh, a, a political uh, a political distinction. The reality is, uh, the people uh, that we were talking to, uh, uh, regardless of their uh, uh, criminal conviction, uh, had been involved in violence in different ways. Uh, over a lifetime, and uh, but their involvement was really uh, was really quite complicated, and and their first exposure to violence was often uh, in early childhood. Uh, in many cases, growing up in fairly chaotic uh, homes where they witnessed a, a lot of violence as as young kids, violence among uh, their parents, uh, they're exposed to victimization uh, in their childhood uh, childhood homes. Um, the neighborhoods they grew up in uh, uh, often had a lot of crime on the street and they would, uh, uh, they would see crime in everyday life uh, in, in their neighborhoods. Uh, nearly all of the people we spoke to got in fights a lot, uh, as kids, and so uh, they were uh, certainly deeply exposed to violence, and their involvement in violence was uh, took many different forms. They were victimized by it, uh, uh, and uh, they saw a lot of violence, uh, uh, as well in some cases as um, being engaged in violence. And I think this distinction that we draw in the political conversation between nonviolent and violent offenders just doesn't map onto the reality uh, that people are living. And the violence that people spoke to us about emerged really in contexts of poverty. Everyone we spoke to um, more or less uh, grow up, grew up in a low-income family, in a low-income neighbourhood in which uh, the risks of being exposed to violence in different ways were higher. Uh, the violence they spoke about was of a very contextual kind. Uh, uh, if anyone lived in those same contexts as uh, our respondents, they too would be uh, likely exposed to violence as witnesses, victims, uh, and sometimes participants. And this is, uh, this is a, the reality of the harsh conditions of uh, poverty and racial inequality uh, in America. And, and, 
And so I find the way in which we reserve compassion and mercy and leniency only for nonviolent offenders, uh, that to me, I think, really profoundly misunderstands violence as a social problem, its connection uh, to conditions of poverty, uh, and how we should respond to it as a as a question of public policy. So I think that uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is that we have a really hard time, it seems, having discussions about crime as a complex issue. We seem to want to simplify it and almost make it binary so that everything everyone's either an offender or a uh, victim, when often yeah. we represent at different times in our life all of those different positions. Uh, do you feel like uh, there is a way to discuss this that people can grab onto? Yeah, I I hope so. I hope so. I I think um, it it to me it's a really difficult and open ended question. I I look at uh, our public conversation about crime, and it's very uh, dehumanizing. Uh, of people who are involved in the system, and it it draws all sorts of uh, bright moral lines uh, between the innocent uh, and the guilty, the violent uh, and the nonviolent, and uh, and the reality is more uh, is more complex. the The way I've tried the way I've tried to address it in this book. Um, it, it is uh, to try and uh, humanize uh, people who are tangled up in the criminal justice system, and and I've I've, I've tried to do this by uh, as best I can, uh, uh, painting uh, uh, a rich picture uh, of. Uh, of what people are like, and I think we can we can dehumanize people in two ways, uh, and and I think there are problems on the liberal side as as well as uh, on the conservative side of this debate. I think uh, uh, conservatives uh, dehumanize people uh, by r- reducing them to all of their flaws. Uh, but uh, I think equally liberals can dehumanize people by reducing them to all of their virtues. And, uh, and certainly the people that we were interviewing uh, were very complicated, uh, were confronted in many cases with tremendously difficult choices and context that was often wholly beyond uh, their control. And and so this is the story I try and tell in the book, and I think um, my my ethical position in the book is that uh, we should try and extend compassion and decency to everyone. We should try and affirm uh, uh, 
everyone's uh, everyone's human dignity, and that acknowledges, uh, you know, our our basic uh, capacity, our potential uh, uh, for virtue, and so sort of at a at a metal level. Uh, I think that's kind of the politics of the book is to uh, uh, try and make a case for this humanizing perspective on people in which our systems of punishment have uh, uh, off ramps and uh, have a built in capacity for uh, leniency and mercy and aim to draw people into the social compact after they've come into conflict with the law rather than cast rather than cast them out of it i think one of the i think you call that human frailty in the book in a lot of ways is a way that you deal with that is that fair yeah and 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 so uh and i for me human frailty uh uh described uh the uh, partly the poor physical health that uh, people were uh, struggling with. And so we did uh, see a lot of uh, infectious disease, uh, chronic pain, chronic conditions. Some of these were related to long-term drug use. Uh, uh, some were just uh, diseases of, uh, of poverty, uh, asthma, diabetes, and, uh, and so on. Uh, people were also struggling with mental health problems, mood disorders, a lot of depression, PTSD, uh, anxiety, uh, and substance use disorders. Um, and these things uh, uh, tended to uh, clump together. People who are struggling with uh, physical health problems in many cases were also uh, struggling with um, mental health uh, problems as well. and. And it made uh, people's capacity for, you know, intervening in their own futures often very challenging. And, and, and this is one of the great paradoxes of a system of punishment built on incarceration for me. We, we are asking uh, the people uh, turn their lives around uh, and... Uh, Come out of prison, uh, uh, refrain from crime, and uh, uh, rejoin society. Uh, we give them very little help uh, to do that, and so, from my point of view, we're often asking for really tremendous acts of agency from people whose capacity is often uh, very limited and has been undermined in many cases by the system of punishment itself. And so that's a, uh, I think that is a deep paradox in our, uh, in our system of punishment and human frailty is, is deeply implicated uh, in that. Yeah. I think one of the things that I found interesting about the book is there's a couple of times that you seem to be making the argument that criminal justice outcomes are almost demonstrations of a failure of our social systems, including our safety net. Uh, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Right. The, uh, I think, you know, two thirds of our, uh, two thirds of our sample uh, had histories of drug addiction, um, mental illness, and uh, another 30 or 40% were also struggling with 
chronic physical conditions uh, as well. And um, uh, often if people were able-bodied, they uh, had uh, histories of uh, failing in school and and, uh, uh, problems with school discipline, which ultimately drew them into the juvenile justice system, which ultimately drew them into the adult system. And and so, you know, we, we could look at where people wound up uh, uh, not as the, the product only of uh, them being involved in serious crime and in, uh, in the, the case of the people that we spoke to, that was... Uh, 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 that was nearly always the case. Uh, but also it was the product of a whole sequence of uh, institutional failures and people were just falling through the cracks, falling through the cracks, uh, a failed school system, a failed uh, public health, uh, failed public health system, a failed mental health system. And then the prison, of course, becomes uh, uh, the social policy provider uh, of last resort, and uh, uh, you know, it's the, the the backstop in many ways uh, of the American welfare state, particularly for prime age men uh, who aren't strongly connected to families. Hmm. The uh, you know, as I usually say about the podcast, the notion that my project, if I have one, is to radically reimagine America's criminal justice system. Uh, in a sense, I'm not an abolitionist. I just want a system that has good outcomes. By the end of your book, this seems to be what you're calling for, too. Uh, you seem to be calling for a system that still signals social dissatisfaction, but also does something different. Can you talk a little bit more about how you envision the system reimagined? Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I, I that uh, this is very much my project uh, as well. Can, if we were to reimagine the foundations of the system, uh, uh, what would it look like? And uh, I, as you say, I I do think uh, there is a, a a necessary place uh, uh, for the way in which society signals its uh, uh, its disapproval. Uh, its disapproval of crime. Uh, uh, I think there is also uh, uh, a place uh, for uh, for victims in this uh, reimagined system uh, and accountability processes uh, in which uh, uh, we're actively calling upon. Uh, the moral agency of people who have done harm to others. Now, system of incarceration, I think, does not do that uh, uh, remotely. It, it renders people uh, uh, very, very passive, yeah. uh, completely. Sorry, sorry to interject real quickly, but one of the things that I always say is the system actually uh, disincentivizes people to take accountability in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that. People can be uh, uh, utterly passive uh, in uh, in accounting for their own uh, their own moral action, and so a system of uh, of genuine accountability, I think, would look uh, uh, quite different from uh, our our current system. Only that's only really based on incarceration. But then I think there's also uh, uh, this uh, this issue of 
uh, the enormous hardship, uh, uh, material hardship that happens in contexts of poverty uh, where, you know, the footprint of the criminal justice system uh, falls uh, most heavily. And uh, uh, and so I think uh, we, we certainly need active... Uh, methods and institutions that uh, are providing uh, uh, accountability uh, uh, but, and, and we should be attending in a very active way to the harms uh, suffered uh, suffered by victims. But uh, I think uh, we need systems, particularly under uh, uh, the really unusual conditions of uh, American poverty that we have, we need systems that draw people back in to the social uh, compact, uh, uh, find uh, ways of uh, integration, avenues uh, uh, to the mainstream of uh, American opportunity. Uh, and I think in part, too, in a context of you know, the massive racial disparities, uh, that we have, this also means you know settling accounts with history and uh, 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 accounting for the harms uh, done by the criminal justice justice system uh, historically and today, uh, in uh, particularly in disadvantaged communities of color. And so you're talking about you know people who would often times have three generations of people who've been. Uh, incarcerated or more, uh, I, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so uh, something is owed to such families, I, I think. Uh, just as we ask uh, uh, for people who come into conflict with the law uh, uh, to account for their harms uh, to victims, uh, I think the system uh, owes an account of the harms uh, that it has caused to uh, families and communities uh, that have suffered uh, for generations, as you suggest, uh, uh, at the hands of a very punitive criminal justice system. So uh, I'm going a little bit off script here, but I'm sure you've answered this question a million times. How did you end up doing this work? I mean, where did you come to American criminal justice in your journey? Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm Australian and uh, uh, I came to uh, the United States uh, more than thirty years ago now, and uh, as a graduate student, I was a sociologist. I was interested in in poverty and labour markets and work, and I was working on that problem. Uh, at graduate school and then after I left graduate school and and after a few years it, it sort of became clear to me um uh you know I I was going to make uh, um, America my home my my wife and I were you know uh, who's she's Australian too we were starting a a family here our kids were growing up American and uh, um I felt it was important to do something on uh, American society. And um, I think the American penal system was so unusual, so um, such a, a, a 
a dramatic signal of what uh, racial and economic inequality was in America. I was very drawn to it as uh, uh, a student of uh, poverty and inequality. Uh, and I started doing these large-scale uh, statistical studies. And then I, uh, at the encouragement of a colleague of mine uh, back at Princeton back then, um, I started going into prison to teach. And it was um, just a very absorbing and human reality for me to try and uh, come to grips with. And I felt it held some sort of key as to what American society really was. As uh, someone who's been incarcerated, of course, my uh, curiosity when you say that is what do you think you learned most from the experience of walking into a prison and teaching uh, prisoners? Wow, that is a great question. Um, I think for people who have not been into uh, have not been into prison, uh, you know, there, there's very little to compare it to. Prison is unlike any other social institution. It's it's not like a hospital or a school or uh, other institutional settings uh, like that. Uh, the uh, the social life uh, of an institution like the prison uh, is built uh, around control and authority. Uh, and walking into prison uh, for the first time, uh, that was the thing uh, that really struck me and, 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 and still strikes me. We, we just don't have uh, any any comparable way in which sort of uh, uh, human relations are, uh, are, are socially organised. And this is kind of what's, what's strange, it remains strange uh, to me about incarceration after going into prisons for uh, uh, many years. We, we, we think of incarceration as a, a deprivation of liberty, and it, it, it is certainly that, of course. Uh, <laughs> but more than that, it's this real distortion of, uh, of human relationships. Uh, uh, it, uh, normal human relationships are, are, um, uh, are severed and strained, uh, when people are incarcerated, the relationships inside the prison, I, I feel that people struggle to have normal human relationships inside prison. It's a very challenging environment in which to uh, just relate to people in a, a normal way. Does that sound fair? I mean, you can... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a book by uh, the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben that talks almost exclusively about that. It's in the context of World War II Germany, but it definitely talks about the relationship between, you know, just the whole notion of the car uh, of a carceral uh, environment in a lot of ways. Um, so what's the next step? I mean, are you are you done with this, or is it, or is there something that will happen with the Boston reentry study, or do you still have relationships with those people? I I I, I am in conversation with uh, uh, an, 
a number of people and uh, I suspect and would like to think, you know, they're going to be uh, uh, very long-lived uh, very long-lived relationships. Uh, I think uh, uh, that uh, particular study uh, has wound up, though I hope uh, uh, there are policy discussions that uh, might might lead from it. Uh, I'm uh, moving into other kinds of field studies at the moment. Uh, uh, I have a research team where we've been in solitary confinement units mm. uh, in another state prison system, uh, which has been uh, uh, also a, a real uh, a real education. Uh, uh, I'm also very interested in uh, jail incarceration. Uh, many more people go to jail. Uh, than prison, but uh, often only for a few days at a time. And um, I want to understand that better. That is also uh, a very unusual uh, feature of uh, the criminal justice system in America. That that doesn't happen on the same scale as in uh, other countries. And uh, I'm, I'd like to understand all of the social disruption associated with jail incarceration better. Yeah, I think you'll find that very uh, interesting having spent a little time in both jail and prison. Uh, so for anyone who hasn't read the book and is thinking about picking it up, do you have any last kind of words you'd like to talk about uh, about Homeward? Um, well, if, 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 you, if you do read it, uh, uh, I, I hope it might move you to uh, think about uh, the problem of criminal justice in the country uh, somewhat differently, how how closely it is connected uh, to problems of racial inequality and uh, uh, American poverty. I, I hope everyone uh, can join me in uh, critically evaluating the system and figuring out how we uh, might reform it. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it was to talk to you after reading your stuff for many years. Uh, thanks again. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me, Josh. Thanks again. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Bruce Western for being my guest this week. I cannot really explain how much I thank him for taking the time. So here is my take on the interview and on his book, Homeward, Life in the Year After Prison, which I highly recommend. Our prison system is not designed to return people to society in better shape than when they, when they were first incarcerated. People who are already in crisis return homeward even more broken and broke, saddled with massive criminal justice debt, usually with untreated addiction or other issues, and with little hope of securing a meaningful job, safe housing, and they often return to a life of social exclusion and shaming. Homeward amplifies all of these points, but offers an even deeper critique of the system as it currently exists. This book keeps at its core the notion that incarceration is more than simply the result of personal failings and explains why a system built to punish the exceptional can't, or the exceptionally violent, can't possibly create the systemic change needed to address the omnipresent violence which generates criminal behaviors in the first place. This is from the concluding chapter of Homeward. 
Opening the window wider requires that we ask why pervasive incarceration has failed to greatly reduce crime. It is not police, courts, and the threat of punishment that create public safety, but rather the bonds of community produced by a raft of social institutions, families, schools, employers, churches, and neighborhood groups. In regularizing social life and promoting daily routine, these institutions engage the attention of neighbors, co-workers, spousers, teachers, and employers who monitor conduct and stand as a normative reminder of order. In other words, in communities, in belonging, is the hope created, in the hope created by togetherness, peace and emotional prosperity become possible. But for this to take root, for this to really matter, community members have to find common cause with people in crisis in their community, with people incarcerated from their community, and with our returning citizens when they return to communities. That is... For all of this to work, we will have to, as Brian Stevenson says, both have proximity to the problem, we have to know the people, we have to be near them, and we also have to find common cause with them in the realization that we are all broken. Maybe not in the same ways, but broken. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with people randomly after I was incarcerated who told me of all the things that they did in their lives that they could have been incarcerated for. I can't tell you all the times I've looked back at my own life and thinks of the things that I've done that were good and the things that I've done that were bad and didn't get punished. I might be, for instance, from a family that is middle class. I might be educated, but I also have struggles with memories of violence from my childhood, problems with creating intimate bonds, problems with isolation. I've struggled with addiction. I've struggled with frustration and I've struggled with anger. Over my lifetime, I've had to deal with all of these problems. Every time I see someone in the community who's in crisis, there is some part of my experience that allows me to see myself in them, and it's in that process that something powerful happens. In emphasizing commonality instead of difference, in reaching out to instead of fleeing from, I have found that real change can come and powerful bonds can be created. I am part of a church community that welcomed me back and that welcomes and fights for other formerly incarcerated people to come home, that goes into prisons to talk to people from our community, and that works together to offer hope and support for all people who seek community and seek to make a better life for themselves. This is not a call to ignore wrongdoing. In fact, if you listen to this podcast, I talk about responsibility and accountability as key elements in moving forward effectively all the time. But it is a call to help create community connections and support for people when they are in crisis, to be there for them when they are needing treatment, or to be there for them when they face consequences, and certainly to help when they're returning home from incarceration by sharing love and connection. The book Homeward continues in the final chapter. For pundits and policymakers who conjure up shadowy street criminals, protection is offered only by the deterrent and incapacitative force of punishment. The harsh conditions of poverty and the close link between violence and poverty are largely missing from this thin conception of public safety. In reality, the violence that derails people's lives does not usually occur in random confrontations with menacing strangers. Instead, it emerges in family, homes, and neighborhoods. Victims and perpetrators are known to each other. Violence, because it's endemic, 
and attaches to conditions of poverty is itself a kind of deprivation. Thick public safety is clearly in short supply in environments of racial inequality, poverty, and contextual violence. The great failure of mass incarceration is that it tends to weaken the social bonds that produce order and predictability in daily life. Violence ruptures social bonds. Incarceration on a massive scale offers nothing for such a challenge. In other words, only by rejecting the oversimplistic and binary stories like uh, victim, you know, simple victim offender binaries that we've been telling ourselves for decades to make ourselves feel tough or to feel more safe, can we find meaningful healing because it's in our communities that the problems start, it's in our community connections that the problems can be addressed, and it's only through stronger communities that these problems will be fixed. How can taking someone who has been a witness to violence, a victim of violence, and a perpetrator of violence, and then subjecting them to even more violence, and even more isolation, heal anything, or fix anyone, or make sure that anyone comes back in better shape than when they left. Our prison system is broken. It's designed to fix a problem that doesn't really exist, to isolate and punish subhuman monsters. Until we put humanity back at the center of prisons, they will not work. Until we offer hope to so-called violent prisoners, they will not work. The majority of the people in prison are under a sentence called violent. Our re-entry system is broken. It is designed to make people who, have, who often have few employment skills and even fewer opportunities pay back society for their entire incarceration and their entire court system experience. The end result is predictable and sad. People often turn back to crime out of desperation or lack of hope. Our parole and probation system is broken. Too often we rely on a Trailum, Nailum, and Jalum philosophy, where we pile so many conditions on parolees and probationers that it is almost impossible for them not to fail. Where we should be offering hope, healing, programming, and opportunities, recreate miles and miles of traps and tests. And finally, our communities have been trained to reject instead of embrace our returning system citizens. Our communities are broken. No longer do people pay their debt to society upon release, but people like me are held forever at arm's length with little hope of earning a living wage, living in safe housing, or fully reconnecting with society. Bruce Western's research has shown us that there is a way home. The question will be if we have the courage to broaden our sense of community, to reinvigorate our community methods of dealing with violence, our community methods of bringing people back, our community methods of healing each other, to really open our hearts wide enough and to take the emotional risk to see the entire picture of poverty, of lifelong cycles of violence, and to offer people hope that return from prison can mean new and better life in communities of caring and connection. As always, you can find the show notes at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or Stitcher or like us on Spotify or any of the other aggregators of podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks.